Well, we are, we are turning a little bit of a corner this morning, but I'm wanting to keep these two subjects of worship and warfare uh, related. They are, they are related. And what we've studied through so far is the, the primacy, the ultimate of our lives sits in this idea called worship. The wiring inside of us, the design of, of what is in us that reaches for something else. Right? You, know, you and I are managing that every day. I don't know if you're in touch with that. But, but our, something inside of us reaches for something out there. And the challenge becomes when it reaches for the wrong thing, right? And some of those reachings are things that are going to take years to prove to us you're only going to be disappointed with this. Something else we're going to reach for is going to reach back to us and grab hold of us in a way that we weren't ready for it to do that. And things like addictions show up. They tap into our weaknesses. They, they grab something in us that we weren't even aware of. How many of us could, could maybe be here this morning and not aware that, that part of our struggle is we don't understand ourselves enough. And we presented ourselves to something that grabbed us in a way that we weren't ready for. And, and what the word of God does is it, is it enlightens our understanding about God and about what he's done in creation. This is why there's no way you and I as a human being can have any hope that we're going to find our way through this life if we have kept God at a distance. God has designed the universe a certain way. He has designed you a particular way. And if I don't ever understand that design, I'm going to walk around just being blown and tossed and pulled by things that I don't even understand they're happening. So when you and I kind of started this, I know we're way into March here, but we started this year with, with a focal point of worship and warfare. So I think I wrote in your outline, in this displaced mindfulness that we live in, it's easy to start our American fast-paced 2023 without a vigorous mindset that worship is ultimate. Before we knew it, 2023 was starting. And we had a little moment there to collect our thoughts and think about what are we going to do this year? What are we going to be like this year? What are we going to aim at this year and live for And next thing you know, January was just off and running. And the pace, the volume of activity, we were right back into doing stuff and drawing. And here we are in March and we're feeling like, yeah, remember those resolutions? Remember those moments where you got a new app and you downloaded it and you planned some things and loaded some stuff into it? Remember that? Right? Probably not. Right? We've already moved on from that moment. But what I needed to know is that there's an ultimate thing in my life and it's worship. And every day, something in me longs to reach out and worship something. It longs for it. And in the midst of this same setting, I wrote in your outline, it's also easy to start this year without the much-needed awareness that warfare is constant. And I'm aware, I'm, I'm thanking God, I mean, when just meeting some new folks who are coming to the church and... People who are in a different place and some people taking their first steps in the kingdom of God and, and just learning to walk with Jesus. And, and maybe, of course, I know I was in this place. I, I, didn't, I didn't read the fine print, so to speak, and notice that hey, when, I, when you come to Jesus, you, you step into a war zone. 
you kind of don't pay attention to that. And not that it's required, but at some point, the Christian life is war. That's what it is. It's a lot of things, but it is war. Now, and if I don't get any more deep than that, I just want to make sure that when you and I go to do life, that we're not thinking it's something besides that. Because if, if it's war, every day of our lives, it will be very confused, struggle with motivation, because we'll just find life to be much harder than we anticipated it being. But, but if you were in a war, would you wake up every day thinking, this is going to be easy today? There won't be anything challenging. Nothing's going to blow up around me. That wouldn't be your mindset, would it? When warfare goes off, the common stuff of life changes. Right, the headlines on December 8th that you see in your outline there declaring after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, it's war. And if you talk to your grandparents or your parents about World War II, you know everything about America changed on December the 7th. It was a different mindset. People's routines got disrupted. People's jobs got disrupted. What they were going to be doing day to day was disrupted. You know, uh, Rosie the Riveter was, was not a Riveter building airplanes and, and mechanical devices and tanks to be sent overseas to war. She was doing something totally different before that day came. But war changed all that. You know, the World Series was a big deal before World War II started to happen. And then maybe you didn't pay attention to baseball quite nearly the way you paid attention to it before because the news that you were hearing was about real lives and real battles and what might be the outcome of this war. War changes things. Have you seen some of the interviews with Ukrainians? I mean, it, it, it rips your heart out to see what was life a year ago, a little more than a year ago for these people and what it's like now and what they wake up to every day of their lives. Warfare is a different setting. Sinclair Ferguson has written an excellent book. If you're looking for something that's given you a balance of good theology called The Christian Life, he says the Christian life is not all smiles, but neither is it all tears. It's not all peace, but neither is it only unabated defeat. There is all joy and peace in believing, but yet at the same time, the Christian life involves what the Westminster Confession called a continual and irreconcilable war. And it's, it's the language of scripture that informs us that you and I aren't just doing life like it's always been when we come to the kingdom. When, when Paul spoke to Timothy in a couple of these passages here, Paul Older man walking with the Lord for years, <clears throat> commending things to a younger man who has come to faith through his ministry. And he writes to him in 1 Timothy 1. He says, this charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you. That by them you may wage the good warfare. That was a description of Timothy's life, this young man who had come to know Christ. And there was something that God wanted to do through his life. And these leaders prayed for him one day. And these words and insights came to them. Prophetic insights came. 
That there was a ministry that Timothy was going to be giving himself to, and that was described as a warfare. Timothy, wage the good warfare. In 1 Timothy 6, later on in that same letter, Paul says, fight the good fight of faith. It's interesting that good is always on the front end of the fight in these passages. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called. Boy, we could just live in that one verse because there's some insight in that verse. There is an eternal calling from God that shows up in our lives. But then there's a taking hold of it. And, and if we are informed by the rest of Scripture, we know what that can't mean. We can't mean that, that the, the salvation of God is awaiting our performance to accomplish it. That can't be what that means because that would violate the rest of the Scriptures. But it means something. It means that there is a taking hold of something that God has available to us. And, and perhaps that's more in the realm of how are we experiencing the good of what has become ours? How, how is this truth of the kingdom showing up in my life in a real way? Take hold of it. Well, how do I take hold of it? Well, Timothy, you fight the good fight. You engage the war. You are in a war, Timothy. And then Paul comes to the end of his life, and later he writes another letter to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. He says, For I'm already being poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. That's the Christian life. It, it is a fight. And there's a lot of illustrations used about the Christian life in Scripture. Uh, the good vacation is not one of them. The long nap is not one of them. Sunday afternoon, it's not one of them. But the good fight is one of them. Our life is going to feel like a war. And that might shock us because we're Americans. Most of us haven't grown up around war. We've lost sight of what that really is like. John Piper in his book, When I Don't Desire God, says, one of the reasons that in the Western church today, our joy is so fragile and thin is that this truth is so little understood. The truth, namely, that eternal life is laid hold of only by a persevering fight for the joy of faith. He says, the last 200 years have been an almost incredible devaluation of the fight for joy. We've moved 100 miles from Pilgrim's Progress. Remember John Bunyan's classic written many years ago now. Where Christian labors and struggles and fights all his life for the joy that was set before him in the celestial city. Oh, how different <clears throat> is the biblical view of the Christian life than the one prevalent in the Western church? It is an earnest warfare from beginning to end. But today... Worship services, Bible studies, prayer meetings, and fellowship gatherings in many churches do not have a spirit of earnestness and intensity and fervor and depth. The all-important priority seems to be cheerfulness, even jollity. Oh, that the church would awaken to the warfare we are in. David Pallison is a 
counselor who's written a number of books. He led the biblical counseling movement for years. He went to be with the Lord a couple of years ago. He wrote a helpful book on understanding something about spiritual warfare as only a counselor would write one and interacting with people's challenges and problems. But he says this, he says, you are in a battle. I am in a battle. Living in a fog of war, stalked by a deadly predator and facing a master of deception. When our hearts deceive us and our culture misleads us, Satan's desires and purposes are at work. If you're like me, it can be hard to tell in the day-to-day that we are in this war. How many of us would, would associate the words war with those two concepts? Our hearts deceiving us and our culture misleading us. Right? We, we, we would just do that on a daily basis. We would engage those things on a daily basis. Our own hearts, their own condition, the vulnerability that they have to mislead us. Our own hearts are deceptive. Our own hearts are. And the world is constantly pulling on, tempting, twisting, interacting with our lives. That's the war. He says, as with any spiritual reality, it's easy to forget when you can't see it with your eyes. These are dark days. And this is a book about how to stand up to the powers of darkness. The reality of the great war for our souls is on the table in the Bible from Genesis 3 through Revelation 22. We are real people with a real problem. This is personal for all of us. So let me pull this back into this series of worship because these two things are related. And so I want to make sure that we don't lose one like we're moving on to another subject. They're, they're very related. So I, I wrote this down. I want you to see it. I want you to hold on to it. Um, it's in your outline. Just read it to you. It says, ultimately, because this has to do with the strategy of this war. There's a strategic thing being sought after in this war. Ultimately, the war seeks what the father is seeking. And we got introduced to the father's desire in John chapter four. As Jesus interacted with that woman at the wells, we started this series. The father is seeking worshipers. The father is seeking worshipers. He's not just seeking people who will acknowledge his existence. He's not just seeking people who are busy doing nice moral things. He's not just seeking people who will join together with others for some cause. No, 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 no. He's seeking more than that. He is seeking worshipers. The war seeks to redirect man's capacity to worship away from God. Well, who better to consult in this pursuit of strategic understanding than the personality behind the hostility of this war? The personality, the being known as Satan. Paul describes his chief tactic in 2 Corinthians 4 to blind, to veil, hinder, and disrupt, and limit our seeing of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Because remember, worship is a byproduct of seeing. You can't get 
to worship if you don't see anything. You cannot run straight to worship as though you were here this morning. You know nothing about Jesus Christ. You know nothing about the character and nature of God. You know nothing about what God has done. But I'm going to summons you to worship. I could get you to sing these songs, but it's not worship. Because you cannot worship what you do not know. Worship is what goes off inside of us when we see something about God. So if I'm the devil, what do I go after? I go after you what you see. Because I know if you truly see, you can't help but respond to God in worship and adoration. So to get you to stop worshiping, I I need to get you to stop seeing. And that's what 2 Corinthians 4 unpacks for us. Chapter 4, verse 3. We're going to live in this verse a little bit as we walk through these war pieces. Paul to the Corinthians says this, and even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing. Hey, Satan, what are you up to? I am trying to keep you from seeing. What are you trying to keep me from seeing? Well, the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And yet we could, we could live right there, but don't run past that and therefore be theologically vulnerable to whatever gets said out there. God has tucked away little pieces, little advertisements of his glory and his image in his creation. The heavens are telling of the glory of God. So there's something that we stare at and we, we get a chance to see something of the glory of God that would inspire us to worship him. God is tucked image bearing in his creation. That's a big deal. Because what the enemy wants to do is get you to stop seeing the glory of the image of God. Because when you stop seeing it, you will stop worshiping him. So that's why it matters. You think it might not matter. Your culture is telling you it doesn't matter if there's a distinction between male and female today. But when God says... In the image of God, he made man, male and female. He installed something in the earth that would testify about his image. And the enemy has come along in our day and say, let me distort that. Let me cover that up. Let me hide that from you. Let me blind you to the unique expression of the glory of God that comes because there is a distinction between male and female. This is not a small issue. This is not a current day, everybody's welcome to their own opinion issue. This is a created issue by God to show his glory. And the enemy is not accidentally bumping into this issue. He wants to divert worship. And there's something, do not apologize for this. There is something glorious about the uniqueness of being a woman. And the uniqueness of being a man. Glorious about it. So before it gets so cheapened in our eyes, almost like that was inflicted as a punishment upon you, it is God's means of letting his glory come into his creation. Why? So that we might see it and look to him 
in worship. And the enemy wants that not to happen. So let me distort the image of God. So the devil is busy blinding us to the image of God. Whether that means distorting its image so that when you look at that, you don't really see what it actually is. Therefore, you don't worship God. But that's ultimately what he's after. So don't get lost in these topics of the day. This, this is where we get our understanding of what's going on in this world. Well, there is a being out there. He's the God of this world. He's trying to keep them from seeing the image of God, the glory of this, cre- this creator. For what we proclaim, Paul says, is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. God, all right, what's the devil doing? He, he is darkening things. He is blinding us. He is keeping us from seeing. What is God doing? He is bringing light that we might see. Well, what does he want us to see? Be careful. What does he want us to see? Does he just want you to see that there's an organization who's drilling wells in remote places in Africa who can bring water to people who don't have water? Is is that what he's wanting you to see? And I'm not trying to say that's wrong. I think that's fabulous. I think caring for people is, is an expression of God's glorious image. But ultimately... God is not looking for a cause on earth to yoke himself to. This is what God's doing. He is bringing light in order to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Not in Muhammad's face. Not in Buddha's face. Not in somebody else's image. But in the image of Jesus Christ. Jesus is a non-negotiable. Because he uniquely reveals accurately the glory of God. That's what God's doing. Verse 7. But we, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power, it belongs to God and not to us. We, all right, how's this for, for some warfare language? Here's, here's the front lines reporter just came back. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not driven to despair. We are persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always, always, Monday morning, Tuesday night, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. For we who live are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake. So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our mortal flesh. So death is at work in us, but life in you. You know, in in a war, a, a soldier on assignment, on the front lines, he wake he awakes every day to a life given over to death. He puts his helmet on. He puts his gear on. He puts himself in harm's way and he knows today I could die. This could be it today. And he enters the fray anyway. 
Right? There is a posture of the Christian. This is where I think the fragility that Piper spoke of in America is that we are shocked when live bullets fly our way. We are shocked when life is hard. When things that we thought should have come easier to us and we should have been rewarded and we should, we should not, there should not have been danger. It's like, well, what, you're in a war. What do you mean there should not have been danger? How many of us have come to Christ? I don't, if you want a refund, there is a desk out in front. Um, how many of us have come to Christ with the idea that being a Christian means finding safety? There's a lot of abuse in this world. And you come to Christ, I don't ever want to be abused. I want to be kept safe from that. There's harsh treatment. There's conflict. There's rejection. There's disease that could come into your body. And we come to Christ and, and, and somehow our theology is not a warfare theology. It, it's as though we've negotiated a deal with Jesus and now he's going to keep us from all the bad stuff in this world. It's like, what, what if he escorts you to the front lines? Where you start hearing explosions and fires and bullets ripping by your head. That shouldn't shock us because the Bible describes this life as a war. We are not at peace and we do not live in a peacetime setting. This verse, it's got the pieces in it. Right? Let me just unpack the, the warfare pieces that are in this passage right? I'm, real quickly. There are participants in this war. There are individuals who get described here. There are those who are completely blinded, but there's others here as well. And if we go outside this passage, you're going to find that even if you're a Christian, you're not exempt from the impact of being blinded to something. Right? You'll see that all throughout Scripture. Secondly, there is this world. He is the God of this world. There, there is something here. It's like an organized system. And the Bible speaks of it that way. It, it's got like a government in it. And it's got ideas that run the rules of this thing called the world. Then there's an active opponent. He is, he's not a blind idea. It's not like there's just philosophies of life out there. And there's not like this impersonal thing called the force holding everything together. There is a being who is alive, who thinks and acts and has motivation. He, he's, you could have a real conversation with him. He's not a robot. He's a real being. And he directs the traffic of this warfare. And then God is in this war. And there's a prevailing activity. The prevailing activity is this veiling this blinding, this darkness is the prevailing activity in this theater of war. And there's a particular goal, as we've already said. That goal is to keep us from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Listen, I, I don't want to understate or overstate the simplicity of understanding that goal. Because if you don't get what your enemy is after, you can never protect yourself well. If you don't know that's what he's after, what is he up to? What is he up to right now in your life to keep you from seeing the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ? You can get lost in trying to solve your problems as though your problem contains in and of itself. Now that problem is a strategy 
This war is seeking to keep you from seeing something. Now put in your outline there, how is this warfare related to worship? Well, it is this seeing that forms the reaction of worship. The tactic of the enemy is to cut off, to block, to distract us from seeing and encountering the glory of God. Satan's warfare tactic is to cut off our supply line, which chokes off our worship of God. And if you you know, enjoy anything about watching war movies, you always know there is always a strategy, always a strategy to cut off the supply lines. Always. Because if you keep supplying these troops with weapons, they'll keep resisting you. So whether you're watching something medieval and they circled the city and they cut off their supply lines, or you're watching something modern and they drop bombs and blow up trains, blow up bridges, all that is a strategy to cut off your supplies. And the enemy today is seeking to cut off the supplies. Well, what is it that would inflame our worship, would enlarge our affection, our treasuring of God above everything else? Well, it would be seeing him. Absorbing into who we are, the reality of who God is. So the devil is at work. The warfare is designed to keep me from seeing how much, how much of our lives, the chaos, the noise, the busyness, the conflicts, the things we're absorbed in are simply designed to choke off our supplies. That's all he's doing. I just want to create a life where you can't see anything. Because you see, I'm a blinding specialist That's what I do. I live to blind people because I know if you could just see the glory of God, you would follow him in a second. You would abandon everything for the sake of him. You would love him with every ounce of who you are and you would worship and delight in him above everything else. So the one thing I got to do if I'm the devil is keep you from seeing. The last thing that's in this passage, I want to spend a moment highlighting this is a powerful hope is in this passage. There's an intervention into this enemy's activity in this war, and it's God himself. The powerful hope is God. Verse 6 says, God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. We'll interact a little bit in the future with darkness, but man is darkened in his understanding. The world is shrouded in darkness, and we are even called darkness ourselves. So how is it that you and I see anything? How how does something about God become real to us and attractive to us and make us long? How does that even happen? Well, God God has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. It's like it was utter darkness and God shone in my heart. I didn't light a candle. I didn't do this. God in his grace shone in my heart. Suddenly I was seeing things that I'd never seen before. I was understanding the implications of things that I had walked past a hundred times in my life. Because God has shown. Verse 7. 
the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. The surpassing power, the power to overcome in this war, it belongs to God, not to us. Which means if we have designed a life that features natural strengths, natural ideas, natural resources, if that's the life that we have designed and are participating in, even though we call ourselves Christians, uh, those things are not surpassing powers. Those things will not work in this war. We will not overthrow this enemy. This is like throwing rocks at people who fly planes. We don't have a chance against this opponent. Paul said this about our warfare in 2 Corinthians 10. He says, for though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. But that's a, man, that's a mouthful, that verse. And it's a mouthful of mysterious stuff, isn't it? There is an acknowledgement again from Paul, now to the Corinthians, he's done this to Timothy, that, that you are waging war. That's what you're doing. There's something about your life that's waging war. Timothy, you're waging war. Corinthians, you're waging war. Christians, you are waging war. Oh, and by the way, you are using weapons. Or what does a weapon do? Right, rep- weapons have a real simple design. They, they are just they are ratcheting up the force with which anything is done. Right? I, could, I could form an arrow and throw it at you as hard as I could, and it would probably just kind of bump off of you, right? But if I put it on a string and create a bow and I pull it back real hard, that weapon will put that arrow in your skin, won't it? So weapons inflict greater force. In a war. And what Paul says is there are weapons. You and I have weapons. This is where this gets mysterious and weird, isn't it? Because if I said, okay, real quickly, write down all the weapons that you are good at using. It's like our minds would just kind of like go blank, almost like, uh, I I just thought that was a metaphor. Uh, There are actual weapons that spiritually do stuff. But here's the problem. And here's why this emphasis at the beginning of this year, we are losing touch with the supernatural in our day, in our country, in our Western mindset. We're so technologically savvy. We're so in touch with human beings, what somebody else is saying. We live at a natural level in an incredibly hyper way that we are losing touch that there is a war to be fought that needs surpassing power. It needs power that doesn't come from natural things. Sam Storms written an interesting book called Understanding Spiritual Warfare, maybe a year or two ago. He says, we today are far too intellectually sophisticated and technologically savvy to embrace such outmoded and superstitious ideas. Both Satan and demons were a part of a worldview That has long since lost its usefulness and cogency. This is the 21st century, for heaven's sake. 
The biblical worldview, put simply, is God's worldview. And notwithstanding the many industrial and scientific advances that we've come to enjoy in our day, I have more confidence in God's inspired verdict on what is real and not real than I do in the opinions of the most educated and allegedly enlightened minds of this or any other century. We cannot claim to believe in the divine origin and inspiration of the Bible while so casually dismissing its extensive and unambiguous teaching on Satan's existence and activity. The Bible doesn't treat this spiritual dimension like it's no big deal. We can't treat it that way either. But here's my concern. This was, this was the weight. This is part of the reason why the title of this series is Worship and Warfare. This is why those two words are back to back. That little paragraph in your outline says this. A significant reason we are starting this year seeking to be more intentionally mindful of spiritual warfare is because of the surge in natural mindedness that pervades our Western world. And the way it diverts our attention from and our desperate need for God. I need to feel desperate for God. I need to feel the sense that I am in way over my head. I am fighting a battle. I don't have a snowball's chance in hell of winning. I need to feel that. Otherwise, I don't think I don't really need God. And that's the mood of our world. He doesn't need God. He's not necessary. Tim Keller wrote this book, Hope in Times of Fear. I think he wrote it during the pandemic. And he quotes a, a Jewish uh, professor and Yuval Noah Harari, in his 2017 bestseller, Homo Deus, Man, God, A Brief History of Tomorrow, he argues that in ancient times, human beings turned to God or to gods only because they did not have control over the world in which they lived. But we have that control now. Oh, really? What planet are you living on? At the dawn, he says, of the third millennium, humanity wakes up to an amazing realization. Most people rarely think about it. But in the last few decades, we've managed to rein in famine, plague, and war. He wrote this before COVID showed up. Of course, these problems have not been completely solved, but they have been transformed from incomprehensible and uncontrollable forces of nature into manageable challenges. We don't need to pray to any god or saint to rescue us from them. We know quite well what needs to be done in order to prevent famine, plague, and war. And we usually succeed at doing it. When you, when you read somebody saying that, it just is so blatantly like, what on earth? I'd love to say my life never sounds like some of what he just described. We don't need to pray. We know quite well what needs to be done. It's Monday morning. It's the beginning of whatever. And we don't need 
we don't need. Too much, I mean, that's honest, honesty. Too much of the Western church feels like that. We don't need. We don't need to desperately call upon God to intervene with a power that's not our own. We, we don't need that. We have money in a bank account. We, we have a medical plan. We have something we can take for that. We know people who can make a difference, who can make a decision, who they, they've got power in some other setting. My name, my grandfather was, and I inherited this, and, and I've, got, I've got resources, you see. So this is not too far removed from us, is it? But the problem is, those kinds of resources are natural resources. And there's a piece of our lives, a massive piece of our lives, that is supernatural. It involves things that need the spirit in order for us to engage them and encounter them and see them. Right? So remember I said this earlier, the warfare for worship is a fight to see. But to see what? Well, how about what Paul said to the Corinthians? As it's written, to see what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined. What God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed. Something else I revealed to my... No, no. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him. So also, no one comprehends. Hang on to these words. I'm going to highlight a couple of them. Comprehends. No one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, right? That system, that thing, that part of the warfare system around us, not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God that we might understand, right? So we have comprehending. Now we have understand the things freely given us by God. We impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person, listen, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they're folly to him. And he is not able to what? To see them at all? He's not able to understand them. And that's one of the most powerful things because you can stare at something and think you're seeing it. But the Bible here says you don't comprehend it, you don't understand it, and they don't understand it. He's not able to understand them. Why? Because they are spiritually discerned. He is a natural man using natural-minded resources to stare at something and he doesn't see it. So, conclusion... Natural-mindedness is a form of blindness. It is a means of seeing without seeing. 
And, and the difficulty is there's a piece of us that, you know, we do have eyes, we do have ears, we process life with a brain, we interact with things a certain way, and that's part of who we are. This is not a denial that we're only spiritual, not physical. We are physical beings. So there's a piece of this that, that is part of who we are. But Jesus spoke to crowds, and he would say things like, he who has ears, let him hear. Well, they all had ears. Well, apparently not. Not in the sense that he was speaking to them about. So that you could hear a lecture, a, a message, a preaching from Jesus, and not hear it. And lots of people didn't. Why? Because they were natural-minded. They listened only for natural things. Natural-mindedness is a form of blindness. The more natural-minded, the less we see of the things that God reveals. What no eye has seen and what no ear has heard. And Paul told the Corinthians, like he would tell us today, there's, there's an aspect of your life that needs to see what the eye doesn't see, what, what natural-minded understanding doesn't see. The Spirit has to show it to you. And when you get this, you get why Jesus, particularly in John chapter 14, 15, 16, spoke so often about the Spirit. It's better that I go away because I'm going to send you the Comforter, the Helper, and He's going to lead you into the truth. He's going to have a ministry to you that you absolutely must have. He highlighted that. There's something that the Holy Spirit does as he interacts with our lives that he causes us to see things that we don't see without him. To understand things that we would not understand without his interaction with us. It's why Paul prayed. This is why I say there's a, there's a careful need for us. We are not blinded the same way that that people who don't have the spirit are blinded, but we still struggle to see in this life. Don't think for a second, don't overread your Bible to think that, oh, well, I have the spirit, I see everything now. Is that true? I'd like to think that's true. And I certainly have the potential to see, but I'm in a war and there's still a fog and the enemy is still busy and he blinds and he causes things and, and the warnings about being natural minded are there for a reason. And then Paul prays for Christians like you and I in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you something. I'm bowing my knees before God for you. This is why, because I, I want him to do something on your behalf. I want him to grant you something, that you'd be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being. Oh, meditate on that. I wish I could tell you fully what it means. I want to know more. But I know there's something about God at work in the inside of me by the Holy Spirit that brings us strength. And then he unpacks this exchange of strength. Verse 17, he says, so that, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to what? Comprehend. Understand. To get it. How many of you, have, how many of you have ever interacted with something? You're doing a math problem or something and somebody shows it to you over and over and over again. And you're like, uh, can you do that again? Uh, are you seeing it? Well, sure you're seeing it. But you just don't get it, right? 
And then all of a sudden the light goes on and what do you say? Oh, oh, okay, now I see. Don't you say that? That's what this is talking about. This is talking about things that you and I could be staring straight at it and we don't get it. But the Holy Spirit does something on the inside of us. And he strengthens us that we could say, ah, I get it. And he could do that this morning as we're gathered here today. I think that's part of the big part of the reason that God uses teaching at all in our lives. You can do that in your prayer closet. You can do that over time as you stare at something and meditate on it over and over again. The Holy Spirit strengthens us to ah, get it with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth? Oh, this thing is so big. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Did you, you see that cascading of events? There is a knowledge already here in this verse before Paul prays. You already got some kind of a knowledge. But now he prays for a Holy Spirit exchange with us that causes another knowledge that exceeds that knowledge. And then you'll be filled with all the fullness of God. Something else will happen in you. And in that moment, this knowledge, that exceeding knowledge, gives birth to worship. When when I... It's like when I stare at God and I know I've been told, you know, God loves me. I've heard that before I was a Christian. I mean, I've heard that. I've heard it. But then the Holy Spirit takes you into the depths of the reality of that. And he starts to fill in the size of it. And he pushes out the boundaries. And its height and its width and its depth is bigger than you ever imagined. How, how are you getting dimensions here? Where, where are the dimensions changing? Because the Holy Spirit's doing something in exchange with us to cause us to see, oh, This thing is bigger. And then you get overwhelmed with the sense of the love of God for you is so much bigger than you ever imagined. Where'd you get that from? From the Holy Spirit. Maybe used books to convince us of it, but it goes off in our hearts. And now I'm going to respond to God with worship because I realize your love for me is not this big. It's not this big. And my circumstances are this big. Your affection for me is is not this big because I know all the things I've ever done. The Holy Spirit brings to light and I get to go, ah, now I get it. And I'm overwhelmed by a revelation of God and my heart cannot help but worship that God. You understand if your knowledge is not Holy Spirit driven, exceeding previous knowledge, with the fullness of God, your worship is tepid, small, weak. We, we need what's right there in verse 19. We need to know something of the love of Christ that surpasses whatever knowledge we thought we had. Not to de- say that wasn't good. It's got its own experience. But there's a fullness of God that comes when the Holy Spirit awakens something further in us. Give you two more examples real quick. Romans chapter 5. Listen, this is supernatural. This is a supernatural thing going off on the inside of us. Not only that, verse 3 of Romans 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. That's a task. Good luck with that one, right? How's that happen? Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope and hope does not put us to shame because 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 God's love has been poured into our hearts 
through the Holy Spirit poured into our hearts. A powerful drowning experience of something that's supernaturally imparted to us. It's not just language. It's not just words. It's more than that. It is supernatural. And when it goes off on the inside of us, worship in this passage gets to take place by rejoicing in our sufferings. See, that's what drives the fragility out of our lives. Sufferings come, but, but we're not crushed by them. We're not destroyed by these sufferings because something deeper is at work in us by the Holy Spirit. But the more natural-minded, distracted, noise-driven my life becomes quieter, the Holy Spirit becomes. And I'm left trying to pull myself up on my own bootstraps. And I spend a lot more time worrying than I do worshiping. I don't know how you are. Galatians 4, verse 6, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, where does this affection toward God come from? Is it some obligation I'm trying to stand up here and shame you into this morning? How dare you? Not consider how much God loves you. What is wrong with you people? I mean, and you'll probably feel like, yeah, yeah, I could have had a V8. I'm an idiot. I get it. Yeah, you're right. Okay, there's probably a place for that. The Bible does kind of warn us and instruct us in some categories. But, but here, the crying of the heart was sent by the Spirit at work. In, it was an exchange it was the voice and the impression. It was the, the Spirit of God reaching into us and depositing something that became real in us so that it got expressed to God, as we talked about last week. Worship becomes an expression of what God is doing deep in us. And so my heart cries out to God, You are my Father. Where did that cry come from? It's a cry. It's not some casual, yeah, we check that box. God is almighty, eternal. Father, like this dispassionate experience. It is a cry produced in us by the Spirit. This is what the warfare has to have. It's a supernatural fight in our lives. It needs supernatural agency to see things that cause us to worship in the midst of the war. Right, one more thing. Seth, you can come up. I'm just going to spend some time praying with us in just a minute. All right, here's the need of the hour. I tried to summarize this quickly. Need of the hour. This hour is called 2023 in our midst. Need of the hour number one is this. To be rescued from our slide into natural mindedness. I would love to say I don't have any problems in this category. I don't think you can live in a fallen world as people whose connections to the world and God are staticky and messed up and not have a struggle in this category. I don't think you can. So at some point, 
the knowing peace, the knowing and seeing of God can become not knowing and not seeing. Or it can become shallow knowing and shallow seeing. I see a little bit, but I don't see much. And I need to be convinced that, that this task is much bigger. I am much more desperate than I think I am. George Ladd made this comment in a book called The Kingdom of God. He says this, and we'll explore this a little bit more next week. The demonic is absolutely essential in understanding Jesus' interpretation of the picture of sin and of humanity's need for the kingdom of God. People are in bondage to a personal power stronger than themselves. There's a bully out there. He's going to beat you to a pulp. You are not a challenge for him. He doesn't even need to tie arms behind his back. There's nothing about us that he scratches his head. He has long ago figured out what is in human beings and how to interact with them. At the very heart of our Lord's mission is the need of rescuing people from bondage to the satanic kingdom and of bringing them into the sphere of God's kingdom. Anything less than this involves an essential reinterpretation of some of the basic facts of the gospel. Part of the reason why we may be tempted to be very natural-minded in our approach to life is because we tend to create lives where we don't get in over our heads. We stay away from doing risky things that take faith. Take God's got to show up in something. Take a different set of weapons than the spoons that are in our kitchen. We need to get in over our heads. The warfare needs to show up in our understanding differently. I remember seeing the movie Saving Private Ryan. It's a World War II movie. Tom Hanks plays this captain who leads a small band of men on a mission in all kinds of war settings and crisis situations and things blowing up and enemies to be overcome, etc. go off all throughout the movie. And, and part of the little plot line is the, the, the whole little troop of men are trying to figure out what does, what does this character Tom Hanks do back home? When he's not here, when he's not the captain in the war, what does he do back home? And so finally, Tom Hanks lets him in on who he is back home. He says, I'm an English teacher. It's kind of weird because you've been, (laughs) Peter, of course, would be the only guy who thinks, hey, that's pretty critical in a war setting. Um, (laughs) You've watched this man shoot guns, throw grenades, take out tanks fight a very different war. But over there, he's just an English teacher. What's he going to do? Throw a book at you? Make the Germans write lines? Here, write grammar until you get it right. Okay, but, but this is kind of how we fight in our war, right? We, we, we take the best versions of ourselves and we try to engage the warfare that we're in. But we, we need a different set of weapons. We need guns and grenades. We need spiritual things that blow stuff up, that displace the forces of this world. We face dark forces, principalities, and powers in heavenly places. We are in over our heads. 
And if I'm not convinced of that, I will turn every day into a natural routine and just do the stuff that's natural, the stuff that presses. And in America, the stuff that's natural is a long list that we never seem to get to the bottom of every day of our lives. I I need something supernatural. Last thing is, this hour we need to be mindful that the strategy of the war for worship is to veil and blind us from seeing the glory of God. Seeing, treasuring, longing for, having an affection for the glory of God. Listen, don't get lost in goodism as though the fight... The fight that we're in is to eradicate poverty or to do away with plagues and to uh, get rid of all suffering and to become a part of that organization that alleviates that human suffering. That's our call. We are fighting for a cause. It's not even simply a fight for more moral behavior or for me to stop doing the things that I used to do and start doing some new things because I'm a Christian. Now, I mean, stop. Let me fight that fight. Listen, I, I get that exists at some level, but don't lose sight of this. The ultimate fight that affects all those fights is I need to see something about God. That's the ultimate fight. The fight for my soul. My soul thirsts for you, God. That's what it needs to see. I need to know something and get it. And only God can open my life to see that way. Let's stand up together and pray. you to consider your own personal space how the war is at your door and we started David Powelson saying you are in a battle I am in a battle living in a fog of war stalked by a deadly predator facing a master of deception. When our hearts deceive us and our culture misleads us, Satan's desires and purposes are at work. You are in a battle. Can you just close your eyes for a moment because I want you to answer this question in your own heart and in the presence of the Holy Spirit that we want to learn to interact with more effectively. If you were to turn to the presence of God and you were to confess, I am in a battle with what? Right now, recently, what are you in a battle with? I'm sure all over the room there are a variety of things that the Lord is revealing. 
variety of noises that have taken up our attention, that have seized our hearts. So I just had an impression to specifically pray for two. I think there's some here who are in a war with grief. The impression I got, it was almost like grief has become like a pit you have fallen into. And now you live a life in that pit. Grief with all of its power, and it is powerful, no denying, has settled in your life. It's begun to dominate and control, and you can't seem to escape. I think God wants to awaken a fight in you, to go to war, to use weapons. I believe this probably is a word for many, many of us, but just the impression that you are in a battle with fear and anxiety. Fear and anxiety showing up in strong ways, almost surprising you that it's become so noisy in your soul and so dysfunctional and so effective. Fear gets its strength from natural mindedness. Fear is dependent upon you assessing your natural resources. It needs you to do that. It needs you to cooperate with it. It needs for you to go on a walk with anxiety and survey the natural strength you have to avert whatever it is you're afraid of, to overcome whatever it is that's plaguing you. It needs you to Stare at that with it and consider it. But to go to war with that is to use weapons like faith that sees something else. See something the Holy Spirit has awakened and shown you that is true about you right now and true about you a week from now and in the future. A resource that's not natural, it's supernatural. It's a surpassing power that can touch and inform your life. I believe the Lord this morning wants to speak to some here who have stopped fighting. You have stopped fighting. The first thing that comes to my mind as I say that to you is self-pity. You've stopped fighting because you feel a little bit justified in stopping fighting. It's been a long fight. It's been a long time. Things haven't turned around. I've suffered a lot. Listen, at a human level, any one of us would hold your hand and and probably would understand and perhaps would not have fought as long as you have fought. But here's the news that you can't escape this building from this morning. The war exists whether you acknowledge it or not. If you choose not to fight, it doesn't mean the other side will stop shooting bullets at you.
You are in a fight. It's war in this world. And we see something, and we're going to see this in the days ahead. God showing up in these passages. God showing up. The Holy Spirit bringing strength. God bringing light into darkness. God granting things. Granting, I love that word. God granting things. Lord, would you grant some things even this morning? God, would you grant something to those who are here in this room? And and, and Lord, the, the warfare has made them feel so distant from you and disconnected. Lord, you... You don't feel accessible to some here this morning. There is a discouragement that some have carried with them to this moment, Lord. And and you just feel far, far away. You feel distant, Lord. God, would you grant a sense of your nearness? God, we, we have been in these places, Lord. So many of us have stood in a place where we felt disconnected, Lord. We didn't feel like our walk with you was, was a healthy exchange. We didn't feel like, God, where are you? We felt cold. These are dark days, Lord. There are many in this room who feel cold toward you. The darkness. Has made you feel so distant and removed. From their suffering. Lord, they do not find the strength to rejoice in their suffering. Lord, we just read about a work of the Spirit where the love of God is poured into our hearts. Lord, we read about the Holy Spirit awakening and understanding of how wide, tall, big, and deep this love is that surpasses anything we've ever known. God, for Brothers and sisters and friends among us, Lord, would you let that go off inside of them? That this moment of darkness, this moment of distance, this moment of disconnection, God, would be met by your spirit granting light to see something about you that rescues them. Lord, let them see something that causes suffering to give way to rejoicing. Let them see something, Lord, about you. Rescue this morning, Lord, from the blinding effect of the enemy and his hindrance. Father, help us as we live in these daily spaces, Lord. It is war. Our lives are many things, but it is a life lived in a war zone. And we need you, Lord. So God, in the coming weeks, would you teach us how to engage this war so that as we navigate life, Lord, worship comes from hearts that are overwhelmed by the goodness, the bigness, the greatness, the worthiness of God, even in the midst of bullets flying all around us. God, bring worship to your name. Because when you do, it'll be because we've seen something amazing and worthy about you. This is what we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, if you need some prayer this morning, if you guys wouldn't mind just the prayer team coming up, maybe there's some things going on in your life that you just need some folks to agree with you about, come find some prayer.
Yes, our new new uh, newcomers, if you're new to the church, don't forget, come join us for lunch. Stay as long as you can. If it's just a couple of minutes, we'll delight to get a chance to tell you hello there.